0: Welcome to Enemy of the Surveillance State, where we discuss news, tips, and open source tools to help you protect your privacy in an age of mass digital surveillance. I am your host, C. Mitchell Shaw, and joining me live in person in the studio today is my good friend, Adam Craig, who is a Linux Foundation certified engineer. Uh, So he works with Linux stuff. This is what Adam does. He manages a room full of Linux servers for a major uh, university, I won't say where, won't name it, an unnamed university, we're going to put it that way, for unnamed you. We're going to be discussing Linux, what it is, why you should use it, and where you can find it, what it's going to do to protect your privacy and your rights as a human being this week on Enemy of the Surveillance State. Well, Adam, welcome to the cave, uh, as I like to call it, or my wife calls it the dungeon, uh, which is the office in the building behind my house where I do all of my work, including writing for the New American Magazine, all of my other work, video work, and this podcast. So, Adam, welcome, brother. God bless you. Good
1: to see you. Thank you, Mitch. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a while.
0: Now, this is a neat exchange, folks, because this is a little different than anything I've done before. Um, this is typically uh, always when I've brought in a guest, it's been remote. It's been, uh, either, you know, some type of, some type of Jitsy call or a phone call that I bring into my mixing board and mix that down later. I've actually got Adam sitting across from me. We're enjoying, um, an adult beverage. Yes. And you can't hear the ice clinking but there we go. We're enjoying an adult beverage and a great conversation. We've been chatting a little bit about the, the value of open source software as particularly as it relates to Linux. We're going to talk a little bit about what Linux is because I've mentioned Linux in a few episodes of this show before. Um, and you know, we've gotten, I've gotten a little bit into what is Linux. You know, why do I even like Linux? What is that? Uh, If you listened to the last episode when I had Henry on from TechLore, he's also the intern for StartPage and StartMail, maybe just StartPage. I don't I don't know if he has anything to do with the StartMail uh, project that they do. Uh, but Henry and I talked a little bit about the idea of just use Linux. So go back and listen to that episode. You'll find it interesting. And if you haven't listened to it, uh, it, it should be eye-opening for you. It was a neat conversation just between two privacy nerds. So a little background. I have known Adam since he was in college. Uh, I'm an old man. Adam's a young guy. So there you go. Uh, I've known Adam for a long time. And um, Adam Adam used Linux on all of his machines all the way through college uh, and was my first real introduction to Linux. Now, I had taken some IT classes way back in the day and they had discussed Linux. This is back uh, for you Linux guys out there to listening to this, this is when Red Hat was not R-H-E-L, but was just Red Hat Linux, right? It was just Red Hat. Uh, and, um, so I had some familiarity, or at least I understood what Linux was. I had test driven Linux back in the day. Uh, this would have been the early two thousands, like 2000, 2001, 2002, somewhere in that neighborhood. But Adam, uh, my dirty little secret, guys, I'll say this before I bring Adam in. My dirty little secret is that I did not actually convert over to Linux. I did not migrate to Linux. Having anything to do with liberty or privacy or anything, I was just sick to death of the instability of Windows. I had had what I hoped would be my last blue screen of death. And if you don't know what a blue screen of death is, God love you. Because I know what a blue screen of death is it's when you go to boot Windows and all you get is a blue screen and then nothing and then later a lot more, nothing and you realize, oh, it's time to restore my backup, reinstall Windows, go find all the drivers for my keyboard, my sound card, my Wi-Fi card, my graphics card, all of that stuff yeah You bought a computer that came running Windows. You ought to just be able to reinstall Windows, push a button and power right back up and be where you left off. But alas, it is not so. And so I called my friend Adam and I was like, Adam, look, I've had it, man. I'm gonna spend a whole weekend restoring my netbook. Yeah, I said netbook. Like I said, guys, this was a while ago, right? Restoring my netbook. And I just don't wanna have to do this again. What advice can you give me? And I said, Mitch, have you thought about just switching to Linux? And so I poked around for a long, long time looking at Linux, and um, I came back to Adam in another phone call, and I said, Adam, I'm looking at all these different distributions of Linux. There's Ubuntu, there's Fedora, there's, you know, there are all these hundreds of different Linux distributions. Uh, Which one's best? And I'll never forget your advice, Adam. You said, and this is pretty close to a quote, Mitch, "Any." Linux distro is better than Windows. Just pick one that looks like you like it and run with it. And I did. I landed on Ubuntu. We're going to talk about what is Linux, what is a Linux distribution, what is Ubuntu, what is Red Hat, what is Fedora, and why you should consider a switch to Linux to get away from the big two. And by the big two, of course, I mean Microsoft Windows and mac os by apple uh so adam welcome to the show brother thank you sir man it is a stupid pleasure to have you here oh this is uh, awesome adam you were a major major part of helping me out a lot early on i think i might have mentioned this in last week's uh, or last week i got in the habit of doing this show every week and now i do it like whenever i feel like it um but in the last episode Uh, I mentioned that you and I had a conversation once where I was searching for something and I couldn't figure it out. And I remember exactly what it was. I had reinstalled uh, LibreOffice and I had installed all the bells and whistles and there was some stuff that was not compatible with my particular hardware and the distribution that I was running, which was Ubuntu Linux. And something broke and I called you and I said, hey Adam, I got this going on, I got that going on, what can you tell me? And this was like our, I don't know, our 14th or 15th or 32nd, or 85th call where I'd asked you Linux questions. We've
1: had a few over the years.
0: And your very gentle answer was, well, Mitch, a quick internet search returned these results. And I thought, I heard what you said there, Adam. And it was gentle and it was charitable and it was kind. Uh, It was time to cut me loose, kick me out of the nest and let me fly and figure it out on my own. Mitch, uh, you can call me and do internet search or you could just do internet search yourself. So... You know, I figured it out, and I've been doing internet searches myself. Uh, There's a there's a joke within the IT world that uh, that IT guys are just professional Googlers. I don't Google. If you've been listening to the show for more than like one episode, you know that I deeply, darkly hate Google. So, uh, but you know, in the common parlance, we don't say search the internet; we say Google it. I don't say that. I typically say do an internet search because. I don't want to throw Google even a sideways bone, but Adam, uh, let's talk for just a second about your early experience with Linux. But before we do that, let me explain, folks, what Linux is. Linux is an operating system like Windows or like Mac OS, in that it calls up applications and gives you access to data. Essentially, and I mean, there's a little more to it than that, but essentially. That's what an operating system does. Whether it's an operating system on your computer, on your phone, on a tablet, on your television, it pulls up applications and gives you access to data that is stored on that machine. So the big one that everybody knows about, because 90 something percent of the world runs Windows on everything that they touch. And occasionally you've got that one guy that's like, oh, I only use Mac. And that's cool. You know, when people tell me they use Mac and if this hurts your feelings, I'm sorry, but keep listening. When people tell me that they use Mac, my answer always is, well, at least it's not Windows. Right. And I'm serious when I say that I'm smiling and I'm being a little snarky, but it's sincere. So Linux is the third option. And it's the, so here's the question I ask everybody. You walk into a computer store, let's imagine an entirely different world folks, where the IT industry is very, very different than it is. You walk into a computer store and like you buy anything else, you buy a computer. You say, here's how much memory I want the computer to have. Here's how much storage I want the computer to be able to hold. Here's how fast I want the computer to be able to run. Here's what I want the keyboard to look like. Here's how large a screen I want, et cetera, and on. You've handled all the hardware issues, right? Then they say, oh, okay, what operating system do you want? And you say, well, what are your choices? And they go, well, we've got Windows. It'll set you back about 400 bucks, right? And then you're going to have to buy things like word processors and PDF readers and all of those things. Or we've got Mac. It'll set you back, I don't know, but 45 bucks, 50 bucks, 60 bucks, somewhere around the neighborhood. I don't remember the last time I looked at Mac's prices if you wanted to download the operating system. Uh, but you know, you can download, you can get Mac. Uh, that'll set you back less than $100. But you're still going to have to purchase a lot of these other pieces of software to do the normal things that you do every day on your computer. Or you can buy Linux and just use your computer. Oh, and by the way, if you buy Mac or Windows, you're not actually buying the operating system. You're only purchasing a license to use the operating system in accord with the wishes of the people who wrote and own the operating system. But if you get Linux, which by the way is free, we'll just give you that. You actually own it and you can do anything you want to with it. There is no end user license agreement, there's no there's nothing to click. You just set it up and use it. You don't agree to anything, you don't disagree with anything. You just use the operating system. Listener, let me ask you a question. Which one would you choose? Adam, tell me about your early experience with Linux.
1: My early experience, Mitch, was very, very similar to yours. Um, I had uh, started out as a a young high school student. I was developing websites for friends, and uh, I had uh, developed this website for a church, and I was in the process of teaching their IT person how to manage their website, how to. Uh, do updates to the site, how to make, you know, small modifications and so forth, you know, to the content that their visitors were seeing. And this gentleman, I was over at his house, I'll never forget, he says, I cannot believe that you don't use Linux. He said, you're the first website guy I've ever come across who has never, you know, heard of that, because I was totally confused. You know, I was looking at him, you know, Linux, what's that? And he says, well, you know, he says, it's kind of like you know, the, the overview that you were just giving. He says, you know, it's it's kind of like Windows. It's kind of like Mac. Uh, it's another operating system. He says, I have found it to be much more stable. And I'll never forget the distribution that he was using, which no longer exists today, was called Zandros. Um, and uh, so I, I went off, you know, you could go to Newegg.com, or I don't think Amazon was selling these things yet. I think Amazon was still pretty much in the book business at this time. But you could actually buy a CD that would come in the mail with a manual just like, you know, Windows or um, Microsoft Flight Simulator or any game that you might buy in the store. You know, you'd get the nice box and uh, you'd unwrap it, take the shrink wrap out, you know, off of it. And you'd open the box and, and there would be this CD and you'd pop it in. And I did that. And I installed Linux. And... You know, I I think initially, what the initial configuration I did was I set my computer up in a configuration called dual booting, which um, basically allows you to uh, turn your computer on and choose whether you want to run Windows or whether you want to go over into Linux world. And so initially, you know, there were a couple of things that I did on my computer that I knew how to do in Windows, and I knew how to do it well. And so I would dual boot, and I would reboot my machine, and I'd go back over into Windows for these couple of things, but eventually I started learning how to do these things in Linux. And once I got the hang of that, I realized, you know, it's been six months since I've used Windows. So the next thing I did is I just totally switched over to the Xandros operating system and used it exclusively. And yes, there have been times when uh, I have been forced, for various reasons, to use the other two operating systems that we'll try to to mention as as seldomly as possible. Those who shall not
0: be named.
1: Yes, yes. Um, But for the most part, I've been a Linux user ever since. Um, And I guess that switch happened for me probably around 2002. Um,
0: Okay, so I was 10 years behind you, nearly. Because I remember the first, uh, our conversation was in... 11 or 12, 2011 or 2012. And the first, uh, my first install was Ubuntu 1104. Now, just to give you guys an idea, just so you know what I'm talking about. 1104 means that it came out in April, 2011, because that's the way Ubuntu numbers their releases. Uh, 1104 would have been, um, April of 2011, 1110 would be, October, 2011. And then they do them about every six months. I think in all the years that Ubuntu has been doing this, they've only missed one release date. Uh, so they've got one date. That's a little weird. It's like an Oh nine or Oh six or something like that. Um, but yeah, my, my, my journey was much the same, Adam. I, um, I, but I was quicker than you. Now I was slower to adopt Linux than you, but I was quicker to make the final jump than you. Ah uh, it took you, you say, about six months. For me, it was two whole weeks. So I installed Ubuntu. I poked around a bunch. Fedora is great. Uh, I'm gonna plug Ubuntu because that's the one that I've I, you know you tend to stay in in the room where you entered the building. and I entered the building through Ubuntu. i I my first Linux distro was Ubuntu because I just liked the graphical user interface. I liked the package manager. And I'll talk about package managers. Adam and I will talk about that in a little bit. And what is a package manager and why does it matter? Uh, But I just liked the way Ubuntu did things. And I liked the look and feel of Ubuntu. And for you hardcore Linux guys that might be listening to this, uh, it might be a little weird to you that I liked the graphical user interface for Ubuntu 11.04, which was Unity. And I didn't know that there was all this controversy at the time about Unity because they had moved away from the GNOME desktop, which I'm not mispronouncing. And there's a reason that the G is pronounced. I won't get into it. I'll let you do your own internet search on why GNOME is pronounced GNOME and why GNU is pronounced GNU. Uh, It has to do with, with nerd humor and recursive acronyms. And I'll leave it up to you to search that out and find it for yourselves, because we could spend a whole episode on that and it would bore you to tears unless you're a real nerd uh, like Adam and I. I think Adam, Adam, I chuck, do you chuckle at things like Gnu, just the very name Gnu?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I I refuse to pronounce it correctly.
0: Yeah, well, I don't. Uh, I figure the guy that named it gets gets to pronounce it, even if he is kind of a whack job. And uh, if you're listening to this, uh, Stallman, you're a whack job. But that's okay, because I love the code you write. And that's what we're going to talk about, the glory of open source, which all of this sort of ties into the idea of open source software, which we'll get into in a moment. But first, uh, I want to wrap this up, uh, my, my little story about my uh, integration and uh, transition over into the Linux community and the Linux, Linuxville, I think you called it, uh, Linux town. I love it. Uh, because i installed ubuntu linux and um i did dual boot as well which again just just for the listeners means uh you power up your computer and instead of coming up to windows it immediately comes up to a menu that says uh oh, hey you got these two different uh operating systems which one did you want to run today and you choose like i want to run linux or i want to run uh windows And you click that and it loads up and you're off and running and it completely ignores the other operating systems. They don't even see each other. They are separate partitions on your hard drive. So what you've done is you've taken your hard drive and you have told your computer to recognize that as two separate and distinct hard drives with a partition in between them, like a brick wall. One partition cannot even see the other partition. So Windows cannot see Linux. Linux cannot see windows. Well, okay. Actually, Linux can see windows if you tell it to, uh, but it sees it as uh, an extra storage drive. It doesn't see the operating system, but you can actually access your data on there, which is super cool because with the Windows side, Smooth cannot see the Linux side. It's just a thing of beauty. I love it. And after about two weeks of that, I realized it has been a week and six days. Since I have even accessed the Windows partition, why am I giving Bill Gates, well, his company, 50% of the, of the real estate of my hard drive? And I simply copied all of my data over to my external hard drive. If you're not backing up your stuff, by the way, guys, uh, always be backing up. Like always, always, always back up your stuff because things break. And you're going to lose your stuff. You're going to lose those pictures of your kids. You're going to lose the the wedding videos, Scott, my brother-in-law. Um, you're going to lose that stuff if you're not doing a good backup. So do a backup. Back up your stuff. And so I restored, you know, here, I, I just simply, I knew I had everything backed up. So I simply just booted again from the USB stick or CD, whatever I was using, and uh, did a complete reinstall, removed Windows completely from my computer, gave the entire hard drive over to Linux. Uh, Ubuntu Linux, and reinst- uh, You know, just dropped all my data back in place, got all my applications back up and running. And I have never looked back. And that was sometime after April of 2011, because I remember I was running 1104, but it had been out for a little while. And 1110 came in right after that. So let's say July or somewhere uh, 2011. And I've just never looked back. And So again, going back to what I said earlier, one of my dirty little secrets is that it had nothing to do with privacy. It had nothing to do with liberty, but it only took me a few months to figure out that the philosophy of the Linux ecosystem, the Linux mindset, the open source mindset fits perfectly with my philosophy of liberty and privacy and let me do my thing, right? So like, maybe I'm just very, very American, but there is this, this sense of liberty that I get to decide how I want to use a piece of software. It's mine. I ought to be able to do anything I want to with it. And I found out really, really quickly that open source. So just a good comparison. And I've made this comparison in previous episodes, but I'll make it today uh, for you who are listening right now. Imagine you go into the grocery store And you're looking at you're in a rush. Like, I don't have time to go home and like use fresh ingredients. I'm not going to make, make dinner. And if you think cooking something frozen is cooking, I'm sorry, it's not. Uh, I don't want to hurt your heart or anything, but you're warming up something that's not cooking. Sorry. Uh, And fine. You can call it cooking because you're using heat to do it. But please don't call it making dinner because you've not made anything, right? I didn't make the application that I'm using uh, to uh, edit this program, this episode before I put it up. I am making this episode, though, because I started with raw ingredients. So anyway, that's an aside. So you go to the grocery store and you pick out a frozen dinner and you look at it and you're like, man, this looks really good. I love this. This looks wonderful. And you flip it over because you want to look at the ingredients because you're like, you know, I want to know what I'm putting into my body. But imagine if instead of listing the ingredients, it just said this food product was created using a proprietary blend of nutrients, spices, and other food things. You would go, oh, wait, you won't even tell me what's in it?
1: That doesn't sound very appetizing.
0: Yeah, no, it doesn't. I'm not going to buy this and take it home and put it in the oven for 48 minutes and then eat it. I'm just not going to do that, right? Right. Uh, but now you put that one down because that's gross. You're like, I don't trust this. I don't know what's in it. If you won't tell me what's in it, I don't trust you. Right. So you pick up another one. Uh, that by the way, is the proprietary software model that is windows and Mac. They say, yeah, you don't get to see the ingredients, but please just trust us. Everything's fine. And you go, yeah, but you won't show me your ingredients. So I don't know if everything's fine. So you pick up another TV dinner. And this one does not just list the ingredients. It lists every ingredient, the proportions of those ingredients. It tells you what the measurements are. It tells you in what order they were assembled. It tells you when and how long to saute the onions. It tells you when and how long to cook the sauce. It's a recipe for making that product. You take that, DV, that TV dinner home, you like it, you, you cook it, you eat it, you like it, and then you think, I want to make this next time. So the next time you go to the grocery store, you actually buy all the ingredients and you follow that recipe and make that exact same meal and you eat it and you're like, wow, it's exactly the same thing. That is the open source model. In open source software, the source code, not what human beings read, or I'm sorry, not what computers read, but what human beings read and write, the source code itself is wide open for anybody on the planet to read, audit, duplicate, alter, and re-release. So the Linux operating system is an open source project uh, originally created in 1991 by a guy named Linus Torvalds. Now you may say Linus He does not pronounce his name Linus. So Linus Torvalds had um, graduated at the University of Helsinki and had become curious about operating systems. So he liked the Unix operating system. He really liked it. Now, there are derivatives of the Unix operating system like Minix and things like that. But the frustration that Linus had Uh, was that he was looking at these. He was looking at the cost involved uh, in this proprietary model, which, by the way, I I need to go back in time a little bit. Let me go back in time. Adam, take a trip. Let's get in the Wayback Machine and go way, way back. So it's the late 1960s, early 1970s. And you buy a computer because you're rich. Because if you bought a computer, then guess what, folks? You were nasty Thinking filthy rich, right? But you buy a computer and it, of course it has to have an operating system or no one's going to buy it. Nobody cared about the operating system. The operating system was literally just a way to sell you the hardware. The software was just so that the hardware would work. Stop and ask yourself this question. Do you care about software at all? Or do you just care about using your hardware? You bought a laptop and you need to send an email. You bought a laptop and you want to watch a video. You bought a laptop and you need to create and show a presentation of some type. Do you care about the software? No. You care about the hardware. That's why you spend a lot of money to buy a computer that's got the RAM that you want, the hard drive size that you want. All that stuff, right? You you, am I, am I, you get me, Adam?
1: That's exactly okay. right. And that's that's kind of still the philosophy, too, that uh, those who are listening in who are running Mac OS um, on a system that they purchased from Apple, that's a very, very similar situation to which you have there, where you go off to Apple.com, you know, you find the latest MacBook Pro or uh, MacBook Air or you know whatever piece of, of new cool hardware that you saw at the big apple you know event that they hold in the fall of each year you say i've got to have this machine and you buy that machine and it comes with apple already installed on it you have paid for the mac os operating system as part of making that that particular purchase can we call that the apple tax it is. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And um, you know. And by the way, you know, we're we're kind of chatting. We're we're ramping up to talking about switching over to to the Linux operating system. And and those those of you who are listening in, who are running Mac OS on your machines already, you'll probably find switching to Linux to maybe be even a little bit easier than Mitch and I did coming over from the the Windows side of things, because the Mac OS operating system, like Linux is a derivative of this Unix operating system. Yes, what's called a
0: Unix-like, Unix-like operating system. That's right. Because it is based on Unix. Just like Linus Torvalds based his operating system, and that's where I'm going with this very long, drawn-out story, and thank you for paying attention and listening as I get through my long, drawn-out version of telling this. Um, He decided to base it on Unix, because he really liked Unix, but he didn't want to pay... The huge fee for the Unix operating system, which by the way, we can thank Bill Gates for that, though he had nothing to do with Unix. It was Bill Gates that introduced the idea that you don't own your software. You own a license to use it. And that goes all the way back to Altair Basic. So Basic was a computer programming language that Microsoft under Bill Gates licensed by creating a copyright and a patent for this operating system is one of the first times this had ever happened before that my point and on my long drawn out story that I never got to the end of earlier, uh, because I tend to do that. I'm verbose that way, which just means I like the sound of my own voice, but Hey, you must too, because you listen to my podcast, right? You see what I did there. So Bill Gates had decided that you would not own Altair basic. You wouldn't own it. You would own a license to use it but he would own it. His company, Microsoft would own it. And this was one of the first times this has ever happened because before that you bought a computer, it had an operating system, it had software and nobody gave a rat's backside about who owned anything except the hardware, right? So somebody would say to you, Oh, Hey man, that program you're using there, that's pretty cool. And you would be like, Oh, you think so? Give me a second. And you'd copy that over. Now, for anybody who's my age or maybe even Adam's age, Adam, do you remember 3x5 floppies? I do. Oh, my gosh. Guys, the A drive, <laughs> right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, do a quick internet search for 3x5, 3x5 floppy disk. It was the A drive on Windows. And it was this, what did it hold, Adam? Like a couple of mega, but 1.4, 1.4 megabytes of information, <laughs> like a good sized document, like don't try to drop any pictures in there. You're done. Right. Um, but so you'd copy that over to a three by five and you'd hand it to this guy and he'd run it over to his computer and put it on his computer and be like, dude, thanks for that. Cause this is great. Now I can, you know, do this thing you were doing. And by the way, in those days, nobody cared if you delved into that operating system or that program, and rewrote it to do what you wanted it to do. Because it does A, B, and C. I don't care about C, but I really wish it would do D. So you just rewrote the stupid program to make it do A, B, and D. And it did. And then you could re-release that to other people and they could use it. Nobody was buying and selling software. They were just handing it back and forth right? But enter the age of proprietary software where I will not show you my ingredients because I don't release the source code. I only allow you to use the program as I have written it, this proprietary software, right? The open source model says, well, here's the source code, do whatever you want to with it. So going back to to Linus Torvalds, he writes this operating system, which he didn't want to call Linux, but... A friend of his said he should call it Linux because L-I-N for Linus, And then, of course, you have to have an X in there because it's like Unix. So it's I-X, right? But he decided to go U-X, Linux. Uh, and it's just this. Own, it's its own operating system is completely open source. And the operating system. So Linux properly, when you say Linux, all you mean is the kernel. Now, if you don't know what a kernel is, it doesn't matter. I'm not even going to get into it. The, but the kernel is basically the thing that allows everything else to work. it's what reaches out to the different applications and the different user interfaces and allows them to interact with the hardware of your computer. So, uh, because of that, then you've got all these derivatives. So Ubuntu is a Linux derivative or distribution, uh, shortened to distro DIS. R-T-D-I-S-R-O-T-R-O distro. Sorry. Uh, so a Linux distro and you've got Linux uh, that has all these different distros. So you've got Ubuntu, you've got Red Hat, you've got Fedora, you've got, uh, what was the one you started with?
1: Oh gosh. Xandros. Uh,
0: and then like for you real nerds out there, there's Arch. If you want to compile your own stuff, go right ahead. Hey, Arch is great. I, I get it, but you know, it's like, I'm lazy, Adam. I want the easiest path from A to Z. And for me, that has been one of the established distros. Right now, the most popular distro over the last umpteen years has been Linux. Uh, Why? Because it's super stupid user-friendly. You just like, okay, so going back to my model earlier, you've got a Windows system. It crashes on you. You reinstall Windows, and then you spend a weekend finding drivers for your graphics card, your Wi-Fi card, your keyboard, your mouse, all these different things, right? Or you just install Linux. And all of that stuff, all of those drivers are baked into the kernel. I have one time since 2011, Adam... One time had to go find a driver for anything. And it's when we bought the computer that my wife uses still today, a few years ago. It was brand new. It was newer. The Wi Fi card in it was newer than the Linux kernel that was out at that time. So there just wasn't a driver in the Linux kernel for that. I had to go find it. But you guys know what it's like to install a driver, right? You find the driver. You run it, you get an install screen, and you click OK, 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 next, 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 approve, 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 agree, agree, agree. Firstborn child, sure, you can have my firstborn child. Just let this darn thing run, right? In Linux, I literally found the driver, the Linux driver, for her Wi-Fi card. I dropped it into the folder of drivers. I rebooted her computer, and it went, oh, you mean that driver and her computer just worked? It was really that simple because of the open source model and the way that things are done. Now, moving on, Adam, real quickly. Okay. Why does this matter to people who care about privacy and security?
1: That's a good question. So, I mean, the the biggest selling point from a privacy and security standpoint with open source software is that development model where the source code is open, uh, where anyone who has an interest can down and, and most users of Linux don't have the interest, maybe don't have the know-how um, to interpret what that code means, but the fact that the code is public, the fact that that code can be downloaded and reviewed by individuals who do have that know-how, no corporation, no individual has a monopoly on the knowledge of what makes your computer operate. Um, so any individual can download that code, can review it, can audit it to ensure that that code does exactly what it says that it does. And this is the key and nothing more.
0: Now, hold on. I want to park you right there because, Adam, you have put your finger on the very pulse of what resonates with the spirit of liberty and and individual freedom. God-given, individual. If you want to say human right, I won't disagree with you. It is a human right, but I believe that comes from God. I don't believe that originates because we are human persons. I believe that originates because we are human persons made in the image of God. You can disagree with me, and I don't care. Uh, I know Adam doesn't disagree with me. I'm talking to to the listeners. If you you as a listener disagree with that, hey, fine, whatever. Um, That's cool. Uh, But the point is that it really resonates with what it means to be an individual human person with innate rights, right? So if I'm using Windows or Mac, I have to trust the developer that their software does only what they say it will do. But their answer when you say, hey, how do I know that is just trust me. So quick story, Linus Torvalds, of course, being from Helsinki, uh, his father actually served on the European Union. Did you know that, Adam? I okay. did. Yeah. So his father was a member. Uh, what do they call them? Uh member of parliament, an MEP, uh, member of the European parliament. Uh, and he was asked one time in an interview on camera, on microphone, has your son ever been pressured by the national security agency NSA of the United States of America to insert a back door into the Linux kernel? Now, what my listeners may not know, Adam is that the NSA is very good through the FISA courts at um, gagging people from talking about that. So if you work for an internet service provider, Verizon, you know whoever, Cox, uh, Internet, whoever, I don't care. And you've been issued a letter from the NSA to provide information on this user or this group of users that always carries with it a gag order that you cannot tell those users or anyone else that the NSA has given you a letter, right? You can't. It's just, you'll go to jail forever. You get dropped down a dark hole if you ever speak about that. So that question all by itself was a bit of a trap door under the feet of this poor guy who is Linus Torvald's father. His answer cracked me up. He said, of course not. While he nodded his head up and down to say, of course. So his answer was just stellar. He's saying no with his mouth in the letter of the law. But what he was communicating to anyone who was paying attention was, yes, Linus has been pressured by the NSA to insert backdoors into the kernel to allow the federal government of the United States of America to spy on Linux users. So how do I, as a Linux user, know, Adam, that that hasn't happened, that Linux has not caved to that pressure? How do I know that?
1: And that that's, that's the beauty of open source is that the community would have disclosed that. I mean, anyone would know that, anyone working on the code, anyone familiar with the code, Um, anyone with access to it could actually verify and can actually verify that Linus has not complied with any of those types of requests.
0: Because a million nerds with tape on their glasses, and if you could see me right now, I've literally got tape on my glasses. I don't look at source code, guys. I'm not a programmer. Uh, I wish I were, and I'm I'm taking a course right now on some programming stuff. I want to up my game a little bit, but right now I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy who uses Linux every day and has since at least July of 2011. Uh, I love Linux. I, I only use open source software. I occasionally, and we'll talk about some ways that you can use proprietary software if you're one of those people who like my job just requires that I use this one particular piece of software. Mitch, I hear what you're saying. I'd love to switch to Linux. I can't. I'm going to tell you how you can. And we're going to talk about that before the show's over. But right now, I want to say that a million nerds out there with tape on their glasses have access to this source code. And guys, they would burn down the world to rat this out if there were anything in the Linux source code that did something other than what it says it does. Because they get to see the source code. They go, wait, wait, wait. That line of code has nothing to do with sending an email, but it does call home to the NSA.
1: And by the way, folks—not just folks who are are convinced that open source software is the way to go—would rat that out. But can you believe? I mean, Microsoft, which despises Linux. I mean, Linux is a oh huge no, Microsoft
0: competitor. loves Linux. Remember their campaign? Microsoft loves Linux.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> they're starting to come around a little bit. I mean, they've started to learn that Linux has taken over so much of the market share that they can no longer really compete with it. They can't ignore it. That's right. So they've begun to adopt, you know, uh, some various things. And some of it has to do with their cloud strategy and all sorts of details that we don't need to go into here. But, I mean, during the days when Microsoft actually viewed Linux as, and this is a quote, as a virus, Microsoft would have, you know, been the first to have looked at that source code and said, hey, These people tell you that this code does one thing, but it actually is not. And that's why you should run our operating system. So you not only have people who are friendly toward the project and who believe in it who are auditing the code, but those who don't as well.
0: Exactly. So what it comes down to is this. They don't allow only their friends to see the source code. Anybody can see the source code. You can go right now to ubuntu.com. And download not only the operating system, but the source code for the operating system. Because one of the things in the GPL, which is the GNU public license, and yes, I pronounce it GNU, Adam, stop frowning at me. Um, It is GNU, the GNU public license. Um, If you look at that license and you look at the open source definition as it is written, which is a legally binding document, by the way, here's the glory of it. These guys were smart enough not to release open source software as the public domain because had they released it into the public domain, they realized nothing keeps a corporation from grabbing that thing that is in the public domain, tweaking it, and making a derivative product out of it that they then make a proprietary thing. So for instance, you can go on and I'm not going to get into the long story. You can do a whole internet search on this if you want to. The movie, It's a Beautiful Life, is actually in the public domain. You could go and grab that movie right now, carve it up into your own movie and then release that as a copyrighted product that no one else can mess with. Though you did not create it, You didn't produce it, you didn't film it, you didn't act in it, you had nothing to do with it. You created your own derivative product that is now able to be copyrighted. So Linux is copyrighted, but it's copyrighted under something called copyleft, which is just a play on words, meaning that it's copyrighted. And the copyright simply says, you can do anything you want to with this, except limit someone else's right. So in the open-source definition, I cannot do a couple of things. I cannot create an open-source program. Let's say it's an accounting program that counts money, right? Because that's what accounting programs do. I don't know why I said that, right? So you've got an accounting program that I've released under open-source definition and under the GPL, but I say, because I'm Catholic and I don't want anyone to be able to use this to to do abortion stuff, I cannot release that under a license that doesn't allow abortion clinics to use it. I also cannot release it under a license that doesn't allow you to decompile that program, alter it, recompile it and release it as your own program so long as you maintain all of those same rights. For the other end users who grab your program from the internet. You cannot alter the source code in a way that limits anyone else's rights.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, there are various different types of open source license agreements. You know, Mitch has referred to the GNU public license. Uh, there's an MIT license. There are several different, um, licensing, um, uh, mechanisms that you can use to release your code to the world. Um, some of those, uh, license agreements actually require if you make a modification to the code, uh, and I think the GNU public license, the GPL for short version three, uh, actually required. And I I think this is correct, that if you make a modification to the code, you actually have to commit that code back um, into the main branch so that the entire community is able to benefit from those those modifications.
0: So, so for the end user or for the, for the listener out there, here's what that means. I grab um, LibreOffice version whatever, whatever we're up to right now, I don't know, uh, and I alter that code to make it do something that it currently does not do. I have to allow that alteration to be made back into LibreOffice so that the entire open source community can benefit from my change because the philosophy of open source and Linus put this best way back in the day. This was in the late nineties. I think Linus Torvalds said with a million eyeballs all bugs are shallow. Now, a computer bug or a code bug is when something doesn't do what it's supposed to do at a time when it's supposed to do it. So I'm running a particular piece of software and I do this particular thing at this particular time in this particular order. And the software goes, uh, uh, I don't know what you want to. I'm just going to shut down now because that doesn't make any sense at all.
1: That's called a blue screen of death.
0: Right. But that would be a good example of a bug, right? Where it's like, yeah, I'm just not going to do what you asked me to do. Right. It says I will do that. But in this particular circumstances, because you did it in order one, three, five, instead of one, two, three, I'm just not going to do that. That's a bug. Right. So Linus's idea is that with a million people looking at the source code, All bugs are shallow. We will find what caused that bug and we will fix it. But see, if I can create a piece of software out of another piece of open source software and I don't commit that back to the original source, then I've created this branch over here that maybe solved that bug, but the original source can't solve that bug. The philosophy of open source is we ought all to benefit from that change. Somebody found a bug, let's all fix that bug, right? So the idea is that now, no matter whether it's called LibreOffice or if I want to launch my own and call it Surveillance Enemy Office, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets the benefit. Of that bug that was found and fixed, that patch that was offered. Does that make sense?
1: That makes very good sense.
0: And there's a great story that tells this. Um, there was many years ago an encryption program called uh, TrueCrypt. TrueCrypt was amazing. Now it's called VeraCrypt. Okay. And Vera is Latin for truth. And there's a reason that Latin matters here, folks. So listen to this. Uh, TrueCrypt was an encryption program that would allow me to encrypt my hard drive, whether that was my actual hard drive or an external hard drive or a USB stick or even a rewritable DVD, okay? I could encrypt that in such a way that not only was it encrypted, but it hid the fact that it was encrypted. Now, the way it did that, because of course you can't hide the fact that you're encrypted, but what it did was it created a partition Within a partition, so picture a donut, a circle within a circle, right? That outer circle is encrypted, and that's where I store all of my real data. But that inner circle was also encrypted, and that's where I store that's where I store some bogus data. So I'm passing through the airport, NSA or uh, TSA says, uh, "Sir, your hard drive won't let us get access." Well, my question is, why the hell are you trying to access my hard drive in the first place, right? But they say, ah, because you're crossing into a foreign whatever. Okay, so fine. I can argue with them all day long, but after they drug me and hit me me with a wrench three times, I'm going to give them the password, right? So I need plausible deniability. So TrueCrypt existed so that after they pressure me and threaten to drug me and hit me with with a wrench... Before they drug me and actually hit me with a wrench, I can say, okay, the password is password12345. They go password12345 and they get into the inner partition, which then shows the outer partition as unused space. It was, a, it was a thing of glory. It was wonderful because it allowed plausible deniability. I could put them in a position to force me to give them my password, which was the password I didn't care if they saw because it's all bogus information. They don't actually see my real documents, my real files, my real folders, but they get to see the stuff that I created just for this instance, right? Well, TrueCrypt ran for years and years, update after update after update. When it was time for an update, do you remember this, Adam? No, I don't. Oh, then when it was time for an update, here's what they did. Instead of the update, they just updated their website to say that they had completely abandoned the project. And the way it was written was really strange. It was words that aren't real words that that tech people don't use. Nerds don't use words like unfixed. We would say unpatched. In this, they said that TrueCrypt contained unfixed vulnerabilities Blah, 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 blah. And the final thing in their post was, we recommend that you use Microsoft's version of encryption, which the true crypt people would just never have done. This was a total red flag to anyone paying attention. And the community was in a complete tizzy for, I don't know, weeks until somebody came out and said, Hey guys, I just took a hard look at this. And if you take the first letter from every word in this entire post in Latin, it translates. We are now friends with NSA. Wow. So it goes back to that Linus Torvalds father story, right? I can't remember his name, so I'm just going to call him Linus's dad. It goes back to the story of Linus's dad with the European parliament and being asked that question, I can't say. So the folks at TrueCrypt cannot say to their users, never, ever again use this because we've been infiltrated. But what they can say is we have unfixed vulnerabilities, so you should use Microsoft's encryption. So this is the beauty of open source because listen to what happened. It forked. It simply forked. Now there's a thing called Veracrypt that is an entirely different organization that just took TrueCrypt's source code and rewrote it into their own thing, and you can still get all of the benefits of TrueCrypt, including a partition hidden within a partition, both of which are encrypted with different passwords, so you can use either password every time you boot that hard drive or USB stick or whatever, and you have plausible deniability because they said... This is not the hill we're going to die on, but we are going to raise a flag that lets everybody know that we abandoned this hill for a reason. And it goes back to the idea, Adam, you know what a warrant canary is, right? Okay. So a warrant canary, uh, let's go way back to, let's imagine it's 18 something it's 1893 or whatever. And I'm going down in this, this mine, Uh, because we're digging out coal or diamonds, or I don't care what, iron ore. It doesn't matter. I'm a mile below the earth's surface where there might be gases that will kill me. They're not going to kill me in a minute or two, but they will kill a canary in a minute or two, because a canary breathes like a thousand times a minute or something stupid like that. So these miners would take a canary in a cage down in the mine with them. When the canary died, Everybody left (laughs) because, you know, hey, if we hang around for a little bit longer, we're probably going to die, right? So they would all leave. This was the purpose of a mine canary, right? So now groups like ProtonMail, ProtonMail does this, Uh, Purism does this, they make great laptops and now they're making a phone. They have warrant canaries on their websites, Because remember that the NSA says, you cannot tell anybody that we have contacted you and said, provide us information. But the NSA cannot say, you cannot tell anybody that we have not contacted you and asked you for information. So what these companies and, and communities do is every month or every three months or once a year or however often they release a warrant canary. They will put up a thing on their website that says, as of July 1st, 2020, Purism has not been issued any papers from the FISA courts. Our next Warrant Canary will be on August 1st. August 1st comes along and you log onto their website and there's not a Warrant Canary. That's because the Canary died, folks. Don't use their services anymore that's what they're telling you. And this is the beauty of the philosophy of open source software. Okay. So what is, how do you get Linux? How do you get Linux? Um, So I'm going to put a link in the show notes for a couple of different Linux distributions. I'll put uh, Ubuntu and I'll put Fedora, because those are the two most user-friendly. But I promised that we would talk about package managers. What the heck is a package manager? So I have to install stuff that I want to use with my operating system. Now, there's some stuff I don't have to install. When I installed Linux, when I installed Ubuntu Linux, the first thing I was surprised to find out is that it comes with a fully functional office suite that is one-to-one Compatible. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say one-to-one compatible, but on a one-to-one comparison with Microsoft Office, it does everything I need. There's nothing missing that I need. And if I create a document in LibreOffice, which comes installed as part of Linux uh, in any distribution that I know, uh, pretty
1: much all the major. I, I,
0: I know Ubuntu. Ubuntu certainly in, includes LibreOffice. If I create a document and I save it as a doc X and you're using windows and I send you that document and you open it, it just opens. You have no idea that I didn't create that in windows. You can't tell the difference. The fonts are all the same. The formatting is all the same. The spacing is all the same. Everything you care about is the same. The one difference that I have noticed is that when I create a, and I'm going to use the word PowerPoint, but I'm putting air quotes around that a PowerPoint presentation, Um, I use something called LibreOffice Impress. Okay. So I create an impress presentation or PowerPoint with air quotes around that presentation. Um, some of the transitions are a little different, but unless you're in the eighth grade and trying to impress people with like swirly transitions, I promise you'll probably never notice the difference if you're in the professional world and building a professional multimedia presentation, no one who sees that presentation is ever going to notice that you didn't like do that pixelated sort of uh, fade in kind of space age odyssey 2000 transition. No one's going to notice and no one's going to care. I give per I give Public presentations all the time. I do a lot of public speaking, and I just gave one a few weeks ago for a group uh, here in the area. That uh, it was about about this topic, about privacy, and about how to protect your privacy. And I built that using LibreOffice Impress. And I promise you that no one who saw that presentation knew the difference. And if I sent that presentation to someone when using Microsoft, and they open it using Microsoft Office or PowerPoint. They wouldn't notice the difference. There's zero difference. Uh, So, there are other things, though, that you need to install. You might need to install this particular program or this particular application that you need to use for this particular project. How do you install that? Well, that's a package manager. Uh, That's what does that. And you don't notice it because you've always just used Windows and you go to the Windows store or whatever it's called, or you go out to the, the office supply store and you buy a piece of software, or you go to some website and you download a piece of software and it comes in a .exe file and you click it and it just installs. Okay. But exe is the way Windows does package management, right? In the Linux world, that gets kind of broken down. There is some fragmentation. So a good comparison, maybe Adam, would be if you're an iPhone user, you've never noticed fragmentation because iPhone is iPhone. Uh, Everybody using iPhone is using what everybody else using iPhone is using. In the Android world, which by the way is based on the Linux kernel, in the Android world, There is fragmentation. I might be running a different version of Android on my phone than you're running on your phone. And the app that I'm running on my phone for Signal for my encrypted texts might have some features that you don't have in the version of Signal that you're running on your version of Android because that's just not available for your version of Android. And this is called fragmentation. And I hate it, but it's a reality that I've come to live with. Uh, because privacy matters and liberty matters. And if I have to sacrifice something, I will live with fragmentation. So because of fragmentation, uh, you've got different package managers in different Linux distributions that handle different types of the way uh, packages are installed. So a particular program or application. Uh, So in uh, fedora or Red Hat, I would use Yum. Y u m would be the package manager, and the commands for installing things might be this or that or the other thing.
1: And right? so, kind of what Mitch is referring to here, to kind of take a little bit of a step back, is we're we're using this term package, and that's a synonym for for basically program, right? Yeah, so that's a good way of putting it. Yes, I mean, if you're thinking about a package manager in Linux, you're, you're kind of thinking of, of a marriage between, if we're talking Microsoft here, the, the Windows Store and the programs and features dialog that you get when you want to remove something. So the package manager in Ubuntu or OpenSUSE or Fedora or whatever Linux dis- distribution that you're using, your package manager both allows you to install new things, And it also allows you to remove things that you no longer want. Um, And there's some safeguards there. If you're using Linux on your desktop, there's some safeguards there to prevent you from deleting things that you really don't want to delete. So I have a a fun story on this. Back uh, when I first started getting involved in technology, I was a kid and I had a... a a relative. If you're listening, Uncle Bill, I'm talking about the, uh, the DOS computer that you gifted me in 1997. DOS. Yeah, it was running DOS. And, uh, and I had this issue. I had this program that I really wanted to install on DOS. This is a sidebar conversation, folks, but I I, do a lot of those
0: on this show. We do a couple of those.
1: Yeah. So, so I wanted to install this, this particular program. I didn't have enough hard drive space. And so I start combing through the hard drive. I mean, this is a computer that had like 256 megabytes worth of storage. What
0: year was this, Adam?
1: This was 1997. (laughs) And this was an old computer. Hold on.
0: I got to park right there for a second because there are some users who can't imagine how much hard drive
1: space 256 megabytes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to let that go right there. So there are some users who can't even imagine
1: that. Yeah, that that's half the storage space of a CD-ROM, roughly. Um, so anyway, I wanted to install this new cool piece of software on this DOS computer, and I didn't have enough hard drive space. I start combing through looking for things I could delete, and I saw this folder sitting on the hard drive. I forget exactly what DOS named its operating system folder, but it, it had DOS in the name, and I noticed it used all this hard drive space. And I said, you know, gosh, if I could just delete this folder, I'd have enough room. So I ran R-M-D-I-R or D-E-L-D-I-R, whatever the command was, um, to get rid of this folder and totally deleted the operating system off of my hard drive. And, of course, at this point, I could theoretically have enough hard drive space to install what I wanted
0: to. Except your operating system won't load.
1: But then, of course, my computer would not start. So you know, these package managing tools are handy because they do allow you to remove things from your hard drive, but they don't allow you to make quite as drastic of mistakes uh, as the one that, um, that I just described. Now, if we're talking about these different distributions that you can use, so we were talking a little bit about the open source software development methodology, where you have all these different communities that develop the source code that does. And the rule in open source development is you develop something to do one thing, to do that one thing well, and to only do one thing. So the Linux kernel is one example. That's kind of the brains of your operating system. Then you might have LibreOffice to edit your... um, Edit your your uh, your word processing documents. You might have uh, LibreOffice Calc for your uh, spreadsheet program. Um, there are different programs if you use a Notepad in, in Windows, or you use Microsoft Paint. You know there are different projects in the open source community that develop these different um, these different packages. That provide these particular functionalities. And so, when we talk about a distribution, this is a community of folks who specialize in going out into the open source community, grabbing these different software projects, and then packaging them up so that they can all run together, they can all talk together, they can function on your computer as a completely functional system where you can do everything that you need to do, uh, to be productive, to entertain yourself. And they package these things up and they distribute them. And that's where we get the name distribution. And so there are all these different distributions that you can choose from. The underlying software that makes each of them work is about 90% the same.
0: Yeah, so there's like if you're using Ubuntu and your friend is using Fedora, 90% of what you do is going to be exactly the same. There's not going to be any difference at all. When you go to manually install a program, you will notice the difference over your friend manually installing or removing a program. Everything else you do, you're not going to notice the difference.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so I imagine, you know, what, what some of our listeners may be wondering now, Mitch, is, is you know, how do I – kind of the same question that you asked me all those years ago – how do I know which distribution to choose? And, uh, you know, I know Mitch is going to link to a couple of things in the show notes, uh, Fedora, Ubuntu. Uh, there's a, a really cool website, and, and if you go to this website, it it kind of looks like it was designed in the early 1990s. Distro Watch. And, and it's called Distro Watch, and <laughs> if you think it, was, it, it looks like it was designed in the early 90s, that's because it was. Uh, but you can go to this website, and if you look over on the right-hand side of the website, you'll see this listing. And it's a list of all the most popular different Linux distributions, these, these communities that distribute this open-source software for you to install easily and use. You'll see them sorted in order of popularity. And what I, what I would recommend to our listeners, Mitch, is just that you go down that list and you click on the first five or ten items that you see listed there. Click through, look at their website, type them in on uh, whatever tool you use to look at videos online. If you're uh, fortunate enough to be off of Google, you know, uh, you might use a, a, a tool that's not YouTube to do this, but of course the common parlance is YouTube. Look up videos online related to these different operating systems. If you're looking at the first five or ten, guaranteed there's a video out there that somebody has produced showing how to install this distribution, how to use it. They'll give you some of their thoughts about it. Don't pay too much attention to what they say about their thoughts. Pay attention to how it looks as they click through.
0: Because all that matters to you as the user who needs to use his computer is the look and feel. That's exactly How does this right. look to me? How does this feel to me? Do I like this or do I not like this? Exactly. exactly. Because like you said, Adam, any Linux distro is better than Windows.
1: That's exactly so right. So
0: just find something you like and go.
1: And generally, folks, if you're using macOS and you're looking through on DistroWatch at, at your different options you'll notice that DistroWatch will tell you, they'll, they'll use this term called a desktop environment. And what a desktop environment refers to is what you see on the screen as you're interacting with the system with your keyboard and with your mouse. Things like how do you launch a program? Um, how does the window look on your screen? How do you minimize a window? All these kinds of things are managed by something called a desktop environment. In uh, the two most popular varieties of desktop environments, there are dozens of them out there. But the two most popular, uh, there's one called GNOME, and then there's another called. You said GNOME. I I I figured you know I'd better use the proper terminology. But yes, others may say gnome because it 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 is spelled like a garden gnome. But uh, the the first is called GNOME, and then the second one is called KDE. If you're coming from Mac OS you most likely will be most comfortable adopting the Gnome desktop environment. There's a lot of similarities between macOS and Gnome as far as how you interact with the system. If you're coming from Windows, there's a very, very good probability that you may prefer KDE instead. Um, I'm not going to recommend anyone in particular. It just it comes down to what you like, how you like using your computer, what works well for you, what's the most intuitive for you. Um, each of these environments you can customize uh, to a, a a much greater extent than you can Windows or Mac OS. Uh, and that's one of the, the great things I have found about Linux over time, Mitch, is that, you know, the more that I've used it, the more that I've found, you know, I have been able to customize my computer to operate with me the way that I operate, the way that I like to do things, as opposed to me having to adopt to it or me having to adapt to it. So my computer now is not running my life. My computer becomes an accessory to my life.
0: Exactly. So my listeners know that I, I, I'm a, my day job is that I'm a freelance writer and that I do most of my writing for the New American magazine. Uh, As a result of being a writer, there are certain things that I need my keyboard to do that no developer out there imagined I would want my keyboard to do, right? Because keyboards aren't created for guys who write in my particular style. I use a lot of what are called M dashes and N dashes. And if you don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. Uh, But it's just a writing style where you interrupt the flow of what you're saying to say something else, a parenthetical statement, but you don't want to put it in parentheses. There's a reason in a particular writing style where you would do that differently. So I have actually remapped my keyboard to allow me to insert an N dash or an M dash. That's a big deal to me. I have other keyboard shortcuts where I need to uh, indent a paragraph because I'm quoting from another source and it's more than a sentence or two, it's an entire paragraph. And I want to show that like the New York times reported that click. And then I insert that paragraph and, and, and just copy and paste that entire paragraph into there. Uh, I'm able to do that super simply with keyboard shortcuts that the good folks over at canonical who produced Ubuntu as an operating system never imagined me doing, but I just do it. And it's just part of my workflow so whatever your workflow is, you do a quick internet search and you will find how to set your Linux operating system up to do every little thing you want it to do.
1: The community is very, very robust. Um, and and I'm, I'm here you know, using community as a very, very broad term that just re- it refers not only to people who are producing this software, but also the people who use it. Um, it's you know I, I just had a, an issue today uh, on my system and I run a distribution called Manjaro. You'll see it listed. It's the second one on Distro Watch right now, and I installed Manjaro with KDE. Now, folks, I've been running GNOME for probably 10 years, and I've heard some great things about some new features in KDE. I wanted to redo my hard drive encryption um, using uh, a a new tool that I learned about that I wanted to use. And so I said this is a great opportunity to try out Manjaro and KDE. The thing is is because I'm not familiar with KDE, I needed to look up how to create uh, a a taskbar shortcut that functioned in a particular unique way that works well for me. Um, A quick search on DuckDuckGo or a start page returned exactly the result that I needed to tell me how to do that. Um, I found um, I have been a a Windows Server engineer in the past uh, before I abandoned that that prospect and decided you know I'm using Linux on my computer I wanna run Linux servers as well. I found that uh, it's much much quicker, much much easier to find out how to do the things that I want to do uh, running Linux uh, than it ever was on Windows or Mac OS and I think a lot of that is because you know uh, so much of the the Microsoft uh, development philosophy or the Apple development philosophy is to encourage folks to use a certain proprietary channel in order to get support Right. So if you're an Apple user it's the genius bar right you're not going to find solutions for certain problems that you have with the technology that you use because Apple wants you to physically go to an Apple store, sit down at the Genius Bar. So, so imagine now if you have a car, and there's something the matter with your car and you need to get it fixed. Now, you know that you can take your car to the dealership, but you also can carry it to a mechanic on the street corner down the street. Imagine if Ford designed cars in such a way that your mechanic who's been working on your Toyota, your Ford, your Chevy, your Honda, now can no longer service Ford. The only place that can service a Ford product is the Ford dealership. So now you're going to the place where they sell Fords in order to troubleshoot a problem with your vehicle. It's a similar philosophy with Apple.
0: So the term that's used in the tech industry is walled garden, but don't think of it that way because that doesn't say it right. Think of it as control. Microsoft wants to control the way you use your computer. Apple likewise, while posturing themselves on the opposite side of Microsoft wants to control how you use your computer. So think of it as like the Bloods and the Crips, right? You've got these two roving street gangs that control your neighborhood. And you're like, well, I don't like the Bloods. Well, that doesn't mean you have to like the Crips. I don't like the Crips. Well, that doesn't mean you have to like the Bloods, right? There is another option. You don't have to choose either Microsoft or Apple. Nobody has to be able to control the way you use your computer it's your it's yours it's your property you bought it you own it you ought to be able to do anything you want to with it and there is the philosophy of individual freedom and liberty that is baked into the open source model and part of that of course is the operating system in fact probably the most important part of that is the operating system so if you're using windows or you're using mac check the show notes. I'm going to put lots of links down there. One of the links I'm going to put is to it. Th- and if you really want to take a deep dive, this is a deep dive. This is a um, a documentary that was put out, I think around 2000. It's called Revolution OS. There'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, if you're a, a guy who just enjoys watching documentaries on operating systems, I will tell you that I've probably seen Revolution OS a hundred times. I'm a nerd like that. I just... It's one of those things where for years when I was traveling for my job, uh, if I was alone in my hotel room at night and it was getting to be bedtime and I just wasn't really to wind down yet and go to sleep, I would just put Revolution OS on my laptop and watch it until I fell asleep because I'm just nerdy like that. Now, maybe you're not, but you know, it's uh, how long is Revolution OS? Let me look at it real quickly here and I can tell you, uh, Revolution OS is, I don't know how long hour, hour and a half, two hours, somewhere in the neighborhood. I can't pull it up right this second. I apologize. Um, but revolution OS is like I say, it's dated. It was made in the early two thousands, about 2000, 2001, but it's sort of a deep dive into the philosophy of the operating system and why open source software ought to be at least an option for you. Now I don't want to put anybody in a box. If you're locked into a system, you absolutely have to use windows. You still got some options, folks. You can, as Adam and I did early on, you can do a dual boot. Okay, well, I've got this one particular piece of software that my job requires me to run that will only run in Windows. There's not an alternative that I can run in an open source format. Fine, then dual boot or do something called a virtual machine. Now I'm not going to drill down into virtual machines. Uh, Henry and I mentioned this in the last episode Basically a virtual machine manager is something that allows you to run an operating system inside an operating system as if it were its own program. So I can fire up my virtual machine manager right now. I can run a version of Mac OS or a different Linux distro or Windows. Uh, don't ask me a lot of nosy questions about whether I have a, a license for that because I won't answer you. I don't ask you direct questions. Um, but I can run that so that I can grab that one program that I absolutely require that will only run in windows or Mac. And then I'm able to use that. And in a virtual machine that will, the way I have it set up, that will actually interact with my main operating system What's called the host operating system. You have a host and a guest. So my host operating system would be Ubuntu Linux. And then my guest operating system might be windows 10, right? but I'm able to run Photoshop, for instance, uh, as its own program running within Windows that's running within Linux. And then my Linux side can actually see that. So when I'm done doing whatever I'm going to do with that photograph or that graphic image, I can drop that over onto the Linux side and still have access to it. So there are ways to do this. Um, I'll put some links in the show notes for how to kind of drill down into that. But what I wanted to leave you with today was that there is an operating system that respects your privacy. There there are operating systems out there that respect your liberty as an individual, and they are not named Microsoft Windows or Mac OS. Uh, good as either of them may be, whatever merits either of them may have, they belong to their owners and you are not that owner. You, right. don't, you don't have the right to choose what you will or won't do with that particular program or application if it's running inside one of those operating systems. However, I have in my many years now of using Linux, and Adam, you've been using it 10 years longer than I have. I'll ask you this question. Have you ever run across something that you needed to do? Now, I don't mean that somebody else required you to use this particular piece of software because they had it all set up the way they wanted it. I mean, you had a particular project that you needed to accomplish that required you to run a particular program that you could not find an open source alternative to because I've not.
1: I have not either.
0: Yeah, I've not. The big one is, oh, Mike, well, I've got to be able to run uh, Photoshop. Well, I run something called GIMP Uh, Now, if you're a professional graphics designer, maybe GIMP won't do everything you need it to do, but I will tell you, it does everything I need it to do. Uh, Look at my logo, the Enemy of the Surveillance State logo that that is created. Guess where that was created, folks? In GIMP. I didn't use Photoshop for that. I didn't use Darkroom for that. I didn't use some proprietary piece of software for that. I did that in GIMP, which stands for GNU Image Manipulation Program, because nerds are funny that way. Um, but my point is this, and I'll, I'll leave the listeners with this note, Adam, and then I'll give you a moment to close out with anything you wanted to say. Um, first there are operating systems and software that respect your privacy and your individual freedoms, and they are all open source programs and open source operating systems. So check those out, check the links in the show notes, see what you think. Secondly, that you don't have to commit. So so Adam mentioned uh, DistroWatch. I'll put a link in the show notes to DistroWatch. I think it's .org.
1: I think that's right.
0: I think it's .org. It might be .com. There'll be a link in the show notes, uh, but I'll put a link down there. You can poke around through any of those operating systems and you don't have to commit and nuke your hard drive and start all over every time. All I have, it's been years since I've seen a Linux distro that did not allow you to boot that by a live USB stick, meaning that you put it into your computer, you've already burned it to a USB stick, you put it in your computer and you boot from the USB stick, not from your hard drive. It makes no changes to your hard drive. Your hard drive is exactly like it wasn't even there. It boots from the USB stick. You test drive this, this distro, this operating system. You decide, I hate it or I love it. Either way, when you restart your computer, your computer never knows it was there. It just boots back up into your operating system that lives on your hard drive and you've made zero changes. If you decide you love it and you want to install it, copy all your personal files and folders over to something else, a USB drive or an external hard drive or a series of CDs or DVDs. To, hey, do make yourself happy. Do whatever you want to do. I'd go spend 50 bucks on a USB external hard drive, but you do whatever makes you happy. Copy all your junk over to that, replace your operating system and copy all your junk back over. And then guess what you've already got. You've already got a backup folks. You've already got a, US, uh, uh, an external hard drive that has all your junk on it. Just keep your junk up to date and everybody will be happy. And then if your computer ever poos the bed on you and you can't use it anymore, Fine you lost your computer, but you didn't lose your data. You can buy a new computer. You can't buy those wedding pictures again. Scott, my brother-in-law, you know who I'm talking about. So my point is that there are operating systems that do that for you. There are programs that do that for you. You can test drive them before you use them and you owe it to yourself and to the cause of liberty and privacy to check it out and see what you think. Uh, Final point, if you are not subscribing to this podcast, but you listen to it on a regular basis, go ahead and click the subscribe button. It doesn't cost a dime. Just click the subscribe button on whatever platform where you listen to this. If you're listening at Podbean, I think it's called Follow or something like that. Uh, Most of the other platforms call it uh, Subscribe. But that way you'll get a notification every time any of the surveillance state issues a new episode. Every time I publish a new episode, you'll get a, a little notification. They'll say, Hey, happy day. You get to listen to Mitch again. Uh, so that's great. Make sure you do that. And then secondly, if you have considered it, but haven't done it yet, uh, go ahead and pop over. I'm going to put links in the show notes to the Patreon page. Uh, folks, I'll be honest with you. I'm just going to be a naked capitalist for a second here. It takes money, time, and my meager talent to produce this show. Uh, I would appreciate your support because it makes the show a success. It allows me to dedicate more and more of my time to this uh, as I'm gain newer and newer patrons. You can, you can support this show for as little as I think right now, 10 or $15 a month or something like that on up to as much as you want to support at. So if you've got a few extra shekels that you want to throw at something you believe in, uh, it won't break my heart at all. If you support the program on Patreon, Uh, You can also pop over to the Teespring account, pick up t-shirts, coffee mugs, stuff like stickers for the back of your laptop. Just show the world that you're an enemy of the surveillance state and that you think uh, warrantless surveillance, whether it's done by an evil corporation who's just nosy and wants to know what's going on in your life, or an evil three-letter agency of the federal government that's nosy and wants to know what's going on in your life, you think it's wrong and you stand up against that. Get yourself an enemy of the surveillance state laptop sticker to support the show and show your stand on warrantless surveillance. So that's it. That's my commercial plug. Uh, Feel free to uh, check all of that out and give a serious consideration to replacing your operating system with something that supports your privacy.
1: And one other kind of point on that too, Mitch, is just in closing on my side is if, if you're convinced that Linux is something you're interested in, say you download um, a couple of these uh, operating systems and, and create a USB stick and you boot into it and you experiment with it a little bit. But say you've got one computer and you need that computer for work. You know, Right now we're we're in a time with the the uh, COVID pandemic and so forth where a lot of folks are working from home, they're using their own equipment. You may be a little bit hesitant um, to totally wipe your hard drive and and reinstall this totally new operating system that you're not as familiar with. There are tools out there, there are companies out there. Mitch was mentioning earlier, wouldn't it be nice if it was possible for you to walk into a store and tell the guy who's selling you a computer what operating system you wanted it to run. There are some options out there where if you do have the means to do this, and maybe you're in the market for a new computer. Um you can purchase a, a brand new computer that already has Linux installed on it. Um so if you're not a tech nerd and you don't want to get into trying to install something from scratch, if that if that makes you uncomfortable. If
0: you're breaking out in hives over the idea of nuking your hard drive and losing your data and like, oh man, I hate Mitch and I'm never listening to this podcast again, Adam that makes you make a great point there, man. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll recommend a couple, uh, I'll recommend in descending or, well, yeah, ascending order, ascending order system, 76.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, the, the laptop that I produce this program with, uh, this podcast is produced on a system 76 laptop. It came running Linux. Now, of course I've, I've installed my own distros through the years because I've had this computer for a long time. Uh, but I have friends that I've steered over to System76. Their customer service is second to none, folks. System76 is amazing. Lifetime customer support. You buy a laptop from them and you call them 10 years from today and say, hey, um, I just did this thing and the thing didn't happen. The guy will stay on the phone with you for as long as it takes. And he will charge you $0 to do that because you own one of their computers and they promised you Lifetime technical support, and they mean it. They're really great. Uh, I might be throwing them under the bus a little bit, but I want to tell my System 76 story. My laptop is—I've uh, had it for many, many years, and it is—it's uh, huge, right? Because I bought it huge, and I knew it was huge when I bought it. But I had one hardware problem with it: the door on the bottom of the computer that allows me to access the hard drive. Um, I had swapped out hard drives so often over the years that I broke the little tab where the screw goes in at them. We've all had this problem. If you ever mess with your computer, you know what I'm talking about. And I was actually on the phone with them one day, or not the phone, but I was chatting with them one day about uh the possibility of upgrading my uh graphic card on this computer uh because there is an update available and I decided not to do it. But while I was chatting with them, uh the the tech just asked me, man, how long have you had your computer? And I told him And he was like, how's it holding up? And I was like, man, I love it. Well, except for, you know, I've got this piece of duct tape holding this door in place because I broke it. It was my own fault. He goes, oh, man, nobody should have to live with that. What's your address? And folks, I kid you not. Now, I'm not promising they're going to do this for you. I'm special. Maybe they really just like me. But they sent me that door pro bono, zero charge gratis. Uh, I got it in the mail like six days later and literally just replaced it. And now my hard drive isn't being held in by a piece of duct tape. So their customer service is excellent. Now, having said that, they have made some great strides toward the privacy side of the thing uh, in that they now, uh, I'm not going to get into what BIOS is, but it's the part of your computer that tells it what operating system to load. When you push the power button, the first thing that happens is BIOS uh, they actually write their own BIOS. So Intel, who created my processor, would not have control over my processor at all because the BIOS would not be written by Intel. It would have been written by System76. So they made a lot of a lot of ground in that area. They're not, if so, that would be stage one. Want to buy a killer computer, laptop, desktop, server, mini, whatever? System76.com. I, they are not. They don't sponsor this show. I don't have an affiliate program with them at all. Uh, I have given some thought. If you listen to last episode, I've given some thought to affiliate programs and I may talk about that in the future. Uh, But for right now, I will just put a link in the show notes. Go there, get yourself a laptop. It'll come running Linux, customer service second to none. They build amazing boxes. If privacy is an even bigger deal to you, my next laptop will come from Purism. They're a little bit pricier, but... They do everything that is or everything that System76 does and then a whole bunch more like hardware kill switches for the Wi-Fi card and the camera and the microphone and things like that. So that, you know, you are super duper like double aught seven James Bond secure in your junk. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes for that. And there's some others out there that I may, I may, I may take a look around and put links in the show notes. I mean, I think you can go to Amazon right now for crying out loud and buy the new, uh, uh, HP. I think HP now actually makes computers that they will send you with Ubuntu running on them. Uh, they do that from time to time and then they back away from it and then they come back and then they back away. So I'll put links in the show notes, check that out. Um, but yeah, so there are ways to do this, protect your privacy. And, uh, I would say stage one and two for protecting your privacy would be to get away from windows and get away from Mac, run Linux on your computer, encrypt your hard drive. By the way, part of any Linux distribution in the initial setup, when you install it, one of the first questions that ask asked you is, Hey, you want to encrypt this hard drive? And you just go, yeah. And, inst- and give it a, a key, a password which does not need to be something like password one, two, three, four, five. You need to give this a little more thought than that. But give it a solid password, jot that down somewhere so you don't lose it. Make sure you've got it memorized before you burn it. Uh, and then every time you boot that computer, the first thing it asks you is, hey, what's your password? Your encryption password. You give it that password, it gives you access to the hard drive, it loads up the operating system. Without that, it won't even load the operating system. So step one, switch to Linux. Step two, encrypt your hard drive, guys. Seriously, get like, care about your privacy and just do this. And then step three would be to install some of the other things that we've talked about, like switch over from some of those Google or, or other based services to something like Mail, ProtonMail, VPN. Um, I haven't mentioned this yet, but I'll mention it now. SpiderOak, if you're using uh, Dropbox, switch over to something like SpiderOak. Uh, these things will make all the difference in the world for how secure you are. As Henry said in the last episode, it's never really a matter of making it impossible for someone to get into your machine. It's never impossible. The trick is to make it more trouble than it's worth. And if you are running Linux on an encrypted hard drive and you're running privacy friendly services, you're just more trouble than you're worth unless you are a direct target of the NSA, in which case, guess what, guys, they've already got an optic laser aimed at the window of your house and they're listening to you. Listen to this podcast they already know. So just go dig a hole and bury yourself. You're fine. Uh, But if you're not a deliberate target, a specific target of a three letter agency of the federal government or some other government, Um, the steps that we talk about on this show, that I talk about on this show, that Adam is talking about today, these things will protect your privacy and help you set yourself free. So um, Adam, did you want to say anything else before we close out?
1: I've got one more thing Mm -hmm. I want to add. This is is an unsolicited plug, folks. I'm not being compensated for this, but Mitch was bragging on me a little while ago about introducing him to Linux and so forth. And, And some of that may be true. Um, but I do have to say that I have learned more about privacy and protecting my data and you know, using tools like Signal for text messaging. Um, I had a, a computer at home like a, a listener that Mitch referred to uh, in the most recent episode with Henry where the, the user mentioned, wrote in to Mitch and said, you know, he he had this computer where he hadn't encrypted his hard drive. I still had one that had an unencrypted hard drive on it. As a result of learning this information uh, that every every listener to the show is benefiting from, I am now more secure, and I'm now uh, taking more pains to care about, about my own data privacy than I ever did before. And so, Mitch, I just want to say thank you for the labors that you're uh, exerting in, in producing this. I'm bit, I'm benefiting from it greatly, and I know each of your listeners are as well. Thank you for having me on today.
0: Oh, Adam, it's been a pleasure, man. We're going to do this again Uh, next time. We'll try to do something a little less nerdy, maybe uh, so that the listener, I imagine listeners out there right now with their brains just oozing out of their ears, right? So maybe, maybe you've listened to this. You want to go back and listen to it in 15 minute segments again next time. So you can really digest it. I apologize, folks. This has been a little heavy, Uh, but I want to say, Adam, man, I appreciate you because here's the glory of it all is that this is like pieces solving the puzzle. We all come in at different places. We all approach it from a different angle, a different perspective. Adam was just like, hey, Mitch, use Linux because it's easier. It's better. It's more secure. But he wasn't thinking in terms of privacy. And I wasn't thinking in terms of privacy until later on. And then I started to look at things because, guys, I'll tell you, when Google uh, introduced Google, what was it first called? Google Now or OK Google? I forget now. But, man, when they first dropped that to Android, I rooted my phone so that I could install an early version of that. I could not wait for Google to hear everything I was doing. That was me just a few years ago, Uh, maybe a dozen, uh, you know, 10 years ago. I just, I couldn't wait. It was just like, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing. Okay, Google, uh, map me to my house, which means that Google knows where I live. And knows where I am right now and knows the route that I'm taking home. And today that gives me cringes. But back then, maybe like a lot of you, when you first started listening to the show, I was just like, huh, man, this is some like Jetsons stuff. If you remember the Jetsons and if you don't, well, shame on you. You should just YouTube an episode of the Jetsons. You'll know what I'm talking about. But and now I think, no, that's not the coolest thing. If that lived locally on my phone, coolest thing in the world, you know, a la Iron Man with his operating system that runs inside his machine and doesn't reach out to anybody else anywhere else, he controls it. Hey, great. But when somebody somewhere that I don't have any control over has control over that, I don't want any parts of it. So having said all that folks, look, I think we beat this to death, uh, switch to Linux, or at least give it some consideration, poke around, check out, see what you think. Um, check out the Patreon page, check out the Teesprings page, check out the links in the show notes for a deeper dive into what this is all about. This has been Enemy of the Surveillance State, which is written, produced, hosted, et cetera, and all by me, your host, C. Mitchell Shaw. Uh, my guest today has been Adam Craig, who is a genuine Linux nerd who runs a room full of servers for a major university. I won't say where and I won't say the name of it. But, uh, God bless you folks. Stay safe. Keep it secret. Keep it private. And we'll see you next time on enemy of the surveillance state.